the great Scottish reformer John Knox summarized the regulative principle of worship as, and I quote, all worshiping, honoring, or service invented by the brain of man in the religion of God without his own express commandment is idolatry. For Knox and the other reformers, one was not required to construct an image and bow down and worship before that image in order to be guilty of idolatry. No, the Calvins, the Knoxes, the Gillespies of years gone by understood idolatry to be anything that man constructs or invents by his own vain imagination. That is, without the positive sanction of God, and which is then brought into the very presence of God as worship unto God. Well, this Lord's Day, we continue, dear ones, our study of that great biblical principle, the regulative principle of worship, that principle that guides us as we stand upon holy ground each Lord's Day before the living God. I'd like to just very briefly outline for you again where I'm going today. Three major points. That first major point that I give to you is, is a discussion of four theological principles that the regulative principle of worship is built upon. That's the first point. I'm going to give you four theological principles. The second major point is to, to go back to the Old Testament briefly and to give some more Old Testament warrant for the regulative principle. And then thirdly, to conclude the sermon with, very briefly, some New Testament warrant supporting the regulative principle of worship. Let me briefly give you four essential theological truths. Then, first of all, four essential theological truths upon which the regulative principle of worship is built. That principle that guides us in how we are to worship God. The first theological truth upon which the regulative principle is built is the truth of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Is God's Word adequate and complete in giving to man all that man needs to know as to how he must please God? Well, absolutely. As Christians, we affirm that God's word is sufficient. It's complete and adequate to give to us all of God's will concerning life. Well, we find that, that is the case in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, where God, through the apostle Paul, says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is, for teaching. God's word is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. That is, to convict us when we have sinned against God. God's word 
looks inside of our soul. It's alive. It penetrates to our inner man and shows us our own sin. So it's profitable for reproof. The word of God is profitable for correction. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, for correction. That is, it not only convicts us of our sin, it sets us on the right path. It corrects us. It's from the word orthodox. From the word orthodox, which has to do with that which is straight. Straight teaching. Putting us on a straight path. And it's profitable for correction, Paul says. For for, I'm sorry, instruction. For instruction in righteousness. That is, the word of God is profitable to train us in all that God requires of us. Now that's quite comprehensive, isn't it? But as you look at the next verse, verse 17, 2 Timothy 3:17, note the purpose or the end God has in view in giving you the scripture that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not for some good works, but for every good work. And that every good work certainly includes how we are to worship God. God's word is sufficient to tell us how we are to worship God. The principle of worship that says that man can add to worship what God does not specifically prohibit teaches that scripture is in fact not sufficient for worship. That principle teaches that worship needs man's innovative ideas. Westminster Confession of Faith Chapter 20, section 2 says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines or commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word. Now, all Christians would say we shouldn't worship God in a way that's contrary to his word. But notice what the confession of faith says after that. Not only that which is contrary to his word, but beside it, or in addition to his word. Any commandments or any traditions of men that are in addition to his word are prohibited as well. And so, the regulative principle is built upon the sufficiency of scripture. The second essential theological truth that the regulative principle is built upon is the sovereignty of God. The regulative principle of worship declares that God alone is sovereign in worship, as God alone is sovereign in every area of life. The regulative principle of worship simply applies the principles of what we know as Calvinism to worship. That it's God's will and not man's will that sets the parameters within worship. You see, the other view that what 
man, what God does not command is permitted, or what God does not forbid is permitted in worship, is actually applying the principles of Arminianism to worship. That man can bring his own will and his own ideas into worship. Well, I would have you consider, dear ones, just as fallen man naturally seeks to impose his will and salvation, I can cooperate with God in salvation, or I have a free will to believe in Christ. So fallen man naturally seeks to impose his will in worship by saying, I can cooperate with God in worship by adding what I desire so long as God doesn't specifically forbid it. But dear ones, just as God condemns a man-centered salvation, so God condemns a man-centered worship. God calls it will worship. And it's condemned in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. Arminianism doesn't belong in salvation and it doesn't belong in worship. It is the will of God that prevails and that we must follow. The third theological truth is, the, is this one, and that is the deceitfulness of your own human heart. God declares the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. And even the regenerate hearts of sincere believers, like you and me, are subject to being deceived by pride. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall, God says. That is why God continuously in his word instructs believers to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. Or God says again in Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Or God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Dear ones, that includes man's thoughts and ways in regard to worship as well. Our thoughts are not capable. Our ways are not capable of bringing to God acceptable worship. We are simply not trustworthy in offering our own thoughts and ways unto God as acceptable worship. And the fourth theological truth upon which the regulative principle of worship is built is the sufficiency of Christ as prophet, priest, and king of his church. <clears throat> In passing from all the God-ordained ceremonies of worship that we find in the Old Covenant, all of those ceremonies which pointed to Christ and to his work and to the New Covenant, 
Christ, dear ones, listen closely. Christ did not leave the matter of worship up to man to decide what was appropriate for new covenant worship. Christ is the only sufficient Savior in redeeming all his elect. He's also a sufficient prophet in giving to us all the words of God concerning worship. He's also a sufficient priest in presenting us and our worship acceptable and pleasing to a holy God. And he is a sufficient king in ruling over his church. Ruling over his church and its doctrine. Can we add new doctrines to the, to the Bible as men or women or children? I think that's a great doctrine. I think I ought to add it to the Bible. No. Why? Because Christ is king over his church and I have no right or any, no authority to introduce a new doctrine. Only Christ has that right. He's the king over the church's government. I can't instigate or initiate a new office in the church of Jesus Christ. I must abide by what Christ has given as king to his church, the offices that he has given, and follow those requirements that are laid out. And I cannot institute any new forms of worship because Christ is king and he rules over his church. And so what Christ, your prophet, priest, and king has not instituted by himself or through his apostles in the new covenant worship is not permitted or allowed. All that pertains to the ceremonial law has been abolished in Christ. And only that which Christ has authorized in the new covenant is for us to practice. Well, those are the four theological truths upon which the regulative principle is built. Now we want to pass on to the second main point. And I want to continue with just a bit more support from the Old Testament to establish the biblical warrant for the regulative principle of worship. Last week, you'll recall, I brought forth the second commandment as it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, and the account of Nadab and Abihu, whom God destroyed for adding to God's command in worship, found in Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. I'd have you turn at this time to Genesis chapter 4, where we read just prior to the to the sermon. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As we consider the offerings that both Cain and Abel brought unto the Lord. The question comes very naturally as you read this text. Why did God not accept Cain's offering. What was wrong with it? Was Cain's problem primarily his intent or was his problem primarily his offering, his sacrifice? Well, I submit to you that it was primarily his sacrifice. 
Now that is not to say that Cain was a believer and that heart was right with God. My point is simply this. Regardless of his heart attitude, even assuming that there was no genuine faith in Cain's heart, he nevertheless thought he was bringing an acceptable offering to God as an act of worship. You can't read the text, I, I don't believe, without at least assuming that. He believed he was bringing an acceptable offering unto God. It would appear that he was sincere in that respect. But we know that it's certainly possible to be sincerely wrong. Even though our intentions may be sincere, we can be absolutely wrong. And I think Cain was. But I submit to you, regardless of whether or not Cain was a believer or not, and apparently he was not, for what the New Testament uh, teaches, that he really believed he was bringing an acceptable offering to God. We find in verses 4 and 5, it says, Abel also brought, well, let me begin with verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected, that is, he had regard, he looked favorably, upon Abel and his offering, but he did not respect or he did not have regard, he did not look with favor upon Cain and his offering. <clears throat> it was after this particular event that we find that Cain became angry. The very next verse and it says in uh, the next phrase in verse 5, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so we find that, that a, an angry attitude followed, but did not necessarily precede the offering that was brought unto God. It followed after God did not receive or accept his sacrifice. Within the text, again, look at verse 7. When God is correcting and rebuking Cain, he admonishes him with these words. If you do well, that is, if you act well, if you perform the right actions, will you not be accepted? The implication, I believe, is here is that he did or acted contrary to God's command in bringing his offering in worship. And that, I think, is verified as we turn to Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, very brief verse, but I think that it does give us a commentary on what occurred in Genesis chapter 4. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Notice here, very briefly, by faith. Well, faith is based upon knowledge which God has given to man by way of revelation. The fact that, uh, that Cain, I'm sorry, that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice implies that God had revealed to them, commanded them, the kind of sacrifice that he required. He was faithful. He obeyed God. And God was pleased with his act of obedience. And it was therefore a more excellent sacrifice. And it says in that same verse, God testifying of his gifts, of the gifts that he brought unto God. And so therefore the implication would be that if that was true of Abel, the contrary was true of, of Cain. That Cain did not obey the commandment of God in bringing the kind of sacrifice and offering that God had commanded him to bring. He violated the commandment of God. And one other New Testament passage I think confirms this, and it's in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12, where we find these words. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Notice the answer given. Why did he become angry with his brother and murder him? Well, we've just read the account. We know what happened. And this is what the New Testament apostle John says. Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. His works were evil. His sacrifice was an abomination to God because it was not the sacrifice which God had commanded him to bring. Either God commanded Cain and Abel to bring the first fruits which Abel did and Cain did not, if you look at the text, where it says that Abel brought the firstlings of the flock, but it doesn't say that Cain brought the first fruits of his crops. It just omits and just says that he, he brought uh, an offering of the fruit of the ground. <clears throat> Perhaps that was his sin. He did not bring the first fruits. Or Cain added something to God's command by bringing fruit rather than a bloody sacrifice. In either case, whichever way you want to look at it, Cain added to the commandment of God and received the, the displeasure and the punishment of God, which in turn after the, the offering brought by Cain, Cain was led to become angry with his brother 
And as I was thinking about that, I thought to myself, how many fights in churches, how many disputes in churches would never begin if members were not fighting over simply opinions of men as to what would, should be or what is most preferable to happen in a worship service. Because if I simply give my opinion and you give yours, we're going to go tooth and nail over that because who's going to decide? Well, it's either going to be majority rules or the guy with the biggest club rules. But it's certainly not going to be when it's just your opinion against mine, the authority and the truth of God and his word that rules. <clears throat> and so, dear ones, from the very beginning, the very first family, the very first expression of the church of God that was upon the earth, it was the regulative principle of worship that was to guide and to lead God's people in the worship of God. Turn with me again uh, to Exodus chapter 25, a second text from the Old Testament in today's sermon. Exodus 25. <clears throat> Here God is speaking to Moses concerning the offerings, the sacrifices for the sanctuary. And we'll consider in chapter 40, not simply the offerings, the sacrifices, not simply the, the vestments, the garments that the priests wore, but every piece of furniture, the architecture, everything in the tabernacle was, was ordained and instituted by God. In verses 8 and 9, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Verse 9, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, here we find very express command that they were not to deviate at all from God's pattern. They were not to bring in any kind of human invention, innovation, anything man-made. Anything that God had not ordained specifically, they were not to bring into the tabernacle, the place where God met with his people. And in chapter 40 of Exodus, and I won't read each verse, simply... Look with me. Here again, you find in this chapter all the furniture that God commanded the people of Israel to, to construct and to build and to place in the tabernacle at God's institution, not man's, at God's. In verse 16, Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Verse 16. And if you look at verse 21, you'll find the same words. Verse 23, the same words. Verse 25, the same words. Verse 27, the same words. Verse 29, the same words. Verse 32, the same words. 
God is making a point that he does not want anyone to miss. Worship of me must be according to my pattern, not according to yours. Now, I'd have you notice that in, the, in these verses that I've just read, it's not only religious actions and gestures and ceremonies that go on in the worship service that are regulated by God's command. But every aspect of the tabernacle in all of its religious, symbolic furniture and clothing of the priests was regulated by God's command. Nothing was left to man's imagination in the worship of God as it relates to the tabernacle. Now, how about the temple? The tabernacle... Under Moses is one thing. How about the temple? First Chronicles chapter 28. The temple constructed by Solomon. Did God, was God as zealous in the construction of the temple as he was in the construction of the tabernacle? First Chronicles 28. Beginning with verse... 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans. The plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat. And the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries for the dedicated things, also for the division of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the articles of service in the house of the Lord. He gave gold by weight for, the, for things of gold, for all articles used in every kind of service. And so he goes on to enumerate in the next few verses all of the things, very specific things, that God had given him knowledge and understanding by revelation concerning the temple. And then we come to verse 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. Nothing was left to the innovation of man's thinking when it pertained to the actual worship of God. Not simply the gestures were regulated, not just the, the ceremonies, but even the furniture in the tabernacle and temple were regulated by God's word. <clears throat> In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 1, dealing with the scripture, and section 6, it talks about a very important phrase here, a uh, phrase dealing with what are called circumstances of worship. And try and make that a little more clear to you as we go along here. But the reason I bring this up to talk about circumstances is simply this. People today 
uh, many ministers, even within Reformed churches today, are inclined to say that God specifically regulates the elements of worship, those ordinary parts of worship, but all the details of worship, which they call circumstances, are not regulated by God's word. Well, we've just read from the Old Testament how much is regulated in the Old Testament by the word of God. Certainly, furniture is not an element of worship. That would be a circumstance. We could uh, use that particular uh, phrase, a circumstance of worship. I'll explain to you in just a moment what a circumstance is. But let me read for you from Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 1, section 6. It says, And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. The elements of, ordin the elements of ordinary worship or the ordinary parts of worship, as stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, are prayer, the reading of scripture, the singing of psalms, the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, those are specifically mentioned in the uh, section dealing with worship. However, actions that are used to perform those particular elements of worship are called circumstances. The actions that are used to perform those elements of worship are circumstances. And all those circumstances, according to the scripture and what we've read from the confession of faith, as I'll point out in just a moment, all those circumstances are to be regulated by God's word as well. Would it be contrary to the regulative principle and contrary to the word of God before prayer, we prayed a, a couple times in the morning worship or the afternoon worship service today to light a couple candles just before prayer. I mean, we've got our lights on, so it wouldn't be for the purpose of lighting up the room. But as a uh, symbol of some kind, whether it being the a symbol of Christ as the light of the world or a symbol of, of the Holy Spirit or whatever it would be, would that be appropriate to light a couple candles in a worship service? Or, now, that lighting the candles would not be uh, an element of worship. The prayer is the element of worship. That would be considered a circumstance. Would that be appropriate? Would that be an appropriate circumstance in worship? Or, what about burning some incense? Would that be appropriate as a reminder that our prayers ascend up to heaven as incense <clears throat> into the uh, nostrils of God? And he receives our prayers as they're offered to, through Christ as sweet-smelling fragrance unto him. Just as a reminder, would that be appropriate? Just to remind us of how God views our prayers. 
uh, wouldn't be an element of worship. It would be a circumstance of worship. But would it be acceptable worship? Or would it be appropriate to, talking about furniture and that type of thing, to hang a cross, to hang a cross uh, behind myself? as a reminder of the cross upon which Christ died. Certainly not an element of worship. It would have to be as a piece of furniture, uh, a religious piece of furniture or a symbol, uh, a circumstance. Or what about, one last thing, uh, using instruments? Now, instruments are certainly not necessary to singing, <clears throat> We can sing without instruments, but if we choose to use instruments, it's not the instruments that are the element of worship. They would be considered a way in which to sing. It would be a help, some way to facilitate singing. And so, an, a, a circumstance of worship. Does God regulate, my point simply is this, does God only regulate elements of worship or does God regulate circumstances as well? I think very clearly from some of the circumstances I used as examples, uh, maybe not all Christians are going to agree with all the circumstances, but I think that some are going to see you know, lighting candles and, and offering incense as being maybe going too far. Well, we could have gone much further to make the point. We could have talked about having an image uh, in, in the building uh, of uh, Christ or something like that. But the point is that Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 40 regulates circumstances as well as elements of worship. And so we do not have the authority as human beings, to bring into the worship of God any circumstances that God has not himself instituted, that Christ has not instituted in the new covenant. We have no right to do so. The only areas of circumstance that we as as elders or as the people of God have discretionary power over are things, as the confession of faith says, are common to human actions and societies. Those circumstances that pertain to any organization of people that would gather, for example, in order to have a meeting in any organization, in any society, you have to know what time you're going to meet or where you're going to meet or whether you're going to sit on the floor, or whether you're going to sit in chairs, or you're going to sit in pews. Those are kinds of circumstances in every society that men must make decisions concerning. And in those particular situations, we as human beings, this, the confession of faith says, we have discretionary power over. But we have no discretionary power in any other uh, situations of circumstances. And those, even those, are to be guided by the principles that we find in the Word of God.
Do you notice today that we stand when we sing? But if we are saying that that is a religious act in our standing to sing, then we have instituted a circumstance that Scripture does not specifically command. But if we are saying by standing at the time we sing that we believe we can sing better than sitting or that chairs get very uncomfortable if you have to sit there for two hours on end and that uh, much like we have padded chairs rather than just wooden chairs that there's a certain level of comfort that's acceptable uh, so that we can learn and listen and pay attention not fall asleep and those types of things, that it's acceptable, therefore, to stand. That's a circumstance that's agreeable to all human societies. It's not something that's invested with some kind of religious symbolism at that point. <clears throat> and so that, I think, is very important to establish as far as the... As far as the um, uh, issue of circumstances uh, goes. One last passage from the Old Testament very quickly and then we'll mention just three passages from the New Testament. First Chronicles chapter 13 from the Old Testament. First Chronicles 13 <coughs> speaks of the incident in which Uzzah was slain for touching the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> In verses 5 and following, it says, So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the Ark of, the, of God from Kirjath Jearim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, to Kirjath Jearim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with instruments, and with trumpets. And when they came to Kidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to, the, to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Now I ask you, as you look at that passage, apart from a proper understanding of the regulative principle of worship, that is the principle which teaches what God has not instituted by express command is forbidden. There is no reason given for the severe actions of God in slaying Uzzah and in chastening David who authorized the moving of the Ark of God. Apart from the regulative principle, it would appear that Uzzah was slain very capriciously 
at the whim of God unless the regulative principle of worship applies. We don't know why God struck him if it is not because of the regulative principle of worship. For it certainly would not appear that Uzzah had evil intentions. If anything, we might say that Uzzah's intentions were noble. He cared for the ark of God and sought to protect it. The violation of God's regulative principle command was at least in these three areas, very quickly. Uzzah, number one, was apparently not a Levite. He was apparently not a Levite, and according to Numbers 4.15, God commanded Levites to move the ark. If you notice in 1 Chronicles 15.2, David makes it a point the second time around to make sure that it's Levites that take care of it. He says, then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister, to minister before him forever. Second violation was that the ark of God was not to be carried on a cart, as the heathen Philistines had done in 1 Samuel chapter 6. You remember when they had taken the ark of God, placed it before Dagon, and how Dagon had fallen uh, headlong, broken into pieces before the ark of God, you remember all of the plagues that God brought upon the Philistines? They finally were fed up and they said, let's get rid of the ark of God. We're under God's curse. They sent it off on a, on a, on a cart pulled by oxen. That's the way the heathen carry the ark of God. And the people of God were imitating the ways of the heathen in worshiping God. See, that's a violation of what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. What I command you, observe it. Do not add to my command. Do not take away from my command. And to add anything by way of human invention is adding to the command of God. And in that passage, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God is speaking specifically with regard to worship. For in just the previous verses, in verse 30, God says, Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them, that is, the nations, after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I will do likewise. How did they worship their gods? We'll worship God in the same way not saying we'll worship their false gods. We'll worship the one true living God in the way they worship their gods. We'll adopt their practices. Man-made invention. Verse 31, God says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And so, we find that the ark of God was carried on a cart, whereas God had commanded in Exodus 25, verses 12 through 15, that the Levite should carry it with poles upon their shoulders. And thirdly, the ark of God, the third violation was that Uzzah touched the ark of God, and in Numbers 4.15 again, God says very clearly that no one is to touch 
the ark of God. But it was in violation of the first two principles that led to the violation of the third one. Because it was not the Levites carrying it, and because they were not carrying it on their shoulders as God had commanded, it led to the third, which led to Uzzah's death. Now, God, dear ones, did not accept the act of worship that accompanied the moving of the ark because he does not accept man's innovation in worship. And David had added to God's command and there were severe consequences to pay for it. However, David did learn where he had failed and he followed the prescription of God to the letter the second time that he moved the ark. And there was much blessing and joy that accompanied God's people as the ark was brought into Jerusalem. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we find these corrections made. 1 Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 2. First of all, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, let... David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Verse 11. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amenadab, then he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers, houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God brought, broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. They did not treat God as holy and obey his commandments. Now, last point. Third point. As we pass from the Old Testament and come to the New Testament... Many might be tempted to say, God has now loosened his rigid standards with regard to new covenant worship. The Old Testament was an age of strict adherence to the law, but with the coming of Christ, there is now grace and freedom to worship God as we please. God is not now so nitpicky as he was in the Old Testament. Well, in answering that particular objection, let me just make these comments. First of all, it's true that there have been changes from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But it is God himself who has made the changes, not man. The ceremonial law which spoke of Christ and of his work has been done away with. And what Christ has instituted in the New Covenant is what remains. Everything else has fallen away. Those were shadows. They pointed to the body, to the substance, who was Christ. Once you have the real person, you don't need the shadows anymore. And so the shadows have passed away under the New Covenant. 
And so that we need to make plain first of all. The second comment is that the new covenant believer is not less responsible to worship God as he commands, but rather the new covenant believer is more responsible to worship God as he commands. If I might put it that way, we're always responsible to obey God. But in light of what Christ has accomplished, the new covenant makes it clear we're even more responsible than those in the old covenant. Let me point you to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 25. Hebrews 12.25 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they, that is the people in the old covenant who were before Mount Sinai, if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Much more. The new covenant, dear ones, because of the added light and understanding and knowledge that Christ has brought to us, makes us not less responsible, it makes us more responsible because to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus said. The third comment with regard to that objection is that those four theological truths that I began with at the beginning of the sermon, those haven't changed from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. God's Word is still sufficient. God is still absolutely sovereign. Our hearts as regenerate people are still easily deceived if we follow our own ways. And Christ is now In the New Covenant, the realized prophet, priest, and king over his church. And we are to hear him. That was what God the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Peter wanted to construct a little tent or tabernacle for Moses, Elijah, and Christ, God spoke from heaven breaking through and saying, no, that's not what you're to do. You're to hear him. Don't try and get your own little works going here. Simply hear him. That is, hear him and obey him. What Christ says. The fourth comment that I'd make with regard to that objection is that the second commandment, which prohibits all man-made invention and worship, is still the same commandment. Just as the other nine commandments are to be obeyed today, so the second commandment is to be obeyed by God's people today. No man-made invention in worship. And then finally, the last comment is this, that there is not only warrant in the Old Testament for the regulative principle of worship, there is warrant in the New Testament. There is warrant from Christ himself. In Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, We read the text earlier, so let me simply point out to you appropriate verses. Verse 6. Jesus said, quoting from Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. Well, why did they worship God in vain? Why is their worship meaningless? Why is their worship futile? Why? Because they teach as doctrines 
the commandments of men. See, any time we seek to worship God by means of our doctrines, by means of our traditions or commandments, our worship becomes futile, meaningless, and vain. God does not receive it or accept it. John chapter 4. Jesus, one other passage, John chapter 4, from the words of, or from the mouth of Christ. And you remember this is the account in which Jesus speaks to the woman by the well, the Samaritan. In verses 19 through 24, the appropriate verses, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not an option. They must worship him in spirit and in truth. Carefully note what Christ says here concerning true worshipers. They worship in spirit and in truth. The woman had said she was trying to, uh, to uh, say something about you worship in Jerusalem. We worship here on this mount, Mount Gerizim. Um, you know, where's the right place to worship? Well, Jesus, notice in verse 22, what he says, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. Why did they know what they worship? Well, because God had revealed to them in the Old Testament they were following God's law. That's how they knew. That's how Christ knew that they worshiped correctly. For salvation is of the Jews. But the point I want to make very quickly simply has to do with the fact that the worship of true worshipers, Christ says, would be characterized by worshiping in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in spirit. That is, worshiping by spiritual, by spirit-created praise and adoration for God. And worshiping by truth or in truth. That is, worshiping God according to His commands. Not according to our likes or not according to what pleases us, but worshiping God according to what pleases Him. And then, just the apostles, very quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, we find that the apostle Paul says concerning this whole issue of authority, over the faith of others in imposing doctrines or imposing worship or imposing anything else on people, the point I'm making here is that the apostles taught that it's not ministers or elders that lord it over the conscience of God's people, but it is God alone who is Lord of your conscience. First Corinthians 7.23 says, You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Do not become the slaves of men, obeying simply their authority. If you're going to obey, obey what God commands you to do, not what man imposes. 2 Corinthians 1.24 says something very similar. 
the Apostle Paul. Note, remember, he was an apostle, but he says even concerning himself as an apostle, he says, not that we have dominion over your faith. We cannot exercise lordship over your faith, dominion over your faith, tell you what to believe, tell you how to worship God. That belongs to God alone. It must be commanded. In the last passage, as we close, is in Colossians chapter 2 from the Apostles. Colossians chapter 2. The emphasis in this particular passage throughout, throughout this passage is on focusing or forsaking, I'm sorry, on forsaking the traditions and commandments of men and rather clinging to Christ and his commandments. For in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, Paul says, who is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. You're not complete in what I say or what I tell you to do. You're complete in Christ and what Christ tells you to do. And you are not to obey me simply on my own authority. But only as I bring the authority of Jesus Christ to bear are you to do what I tell you to do. The same thing with parents. They're not to, to simply impose their authority upon their children. They're to tell their, their children, what I tell you to do is because God commands you to do this. And so to bring God's authority to bear is always the best way. But in this particular chapter, in Colossians chapter 2, notice the warnings against following man-made tradition. Verse 8, Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. According to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations, that is, to man-made regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in will-worship, in will-worship, False humility and neglect of the body that are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. <clears throat> As a father, there was I prescribed a certain protocol for any young man to follow who would want to court my daughters. Now, some may think that I'm far too rigid in my standards. But the issue is this. Any young man who would come to my daughter must first come through me. And I have the right, as my, the father of my daughters, to declare that. They must first come through me. And he must, that suitor, the one who wants to court my daughter, he must please me. I must find him acceptable. A young man who completely disregards my standards and comes as he pleases, I will not accept. 
because I love my daughters and because God has made me responsible to see that they marry godly men. That's my responsibility before God. All his words of love and devotion for my daughter will not impress me. They will be absolutely meaningless unless he comes to me in the way that I have authorized. And if I, as a sinful father, have the right and responsibility to establish a protocol for courtship, how much more the eternal and infinitely holy God has the right and responsibility to establish a divine protocol for acceptable worship of his glorious being. Dear ones, never forget what God told Aaron after slaying his sons for adding to God's command in worship in Leviticus 10.2. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. By those who come near me, by those who approach me in worship, I must be regarded as holy. And thus, dear ones, John Knox was absolutely right. All worshiping, honoring, or service invented by the brain of man in the religion of God without his own express commandment is idolatry. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you. We honor and adore you for the greatness and the glory of your person, for the glory of your works and your attributes. We thank you, our God, that you have had mercy upon us. And Lord, as we approach you in worship, we pray that, that you would deliver us as we have prayed many times before, deliver us from simply empty forms of worship. Simply going through the motions of worship and cause us, Lord, not only to worship you in the outward manner in which you prescribe, but Lord, to come with spiritual dynamic within our hearts and lives, true love and adoration for you. Oh, Father, we thank you for your holy word, which reveals to us how we are to worship you and bring you glory. Let us seek by your grace to be faithful in all of these matters. For Christ's sake, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.